Far between sundown's finish And midnight's broken toe We ducked inside the doorways Thunder went crashing As majestic bells of bolts Struck shadows in the sounds Seeming to be the chimes of freedom flashing Flashing for the warriors Whose strength is not to fight Flashing for the refugees On the unarmed road of flight And for each and every underdog soldier in the night And we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing Through the city's melted furnace Unexpectedly we watched With faces hidden as the walls were tightening As the echo of the wedding bells Before the blowing rain Dissolved into the bells of the lightning Tolling for the rebel Tolling for the rake Tolling for the luckless They are abandoned and forsake Tolling for the outcast Burning constantly at stake And we gazed upon The chimes of freedom flashing Through the mad, mystic hammering of the wild, ripping hail, the sky cracked its palms in naked wonder. As the clinging of the church bells blew far into the breeze, leaving only bells of lightning and its thunder. Striking for the gentle, striking for the kind, striking for the guardians and protectors of the mind. And the poet and the painter far behind his rightful time. And we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing. Good afternoon and welcome to Acting Up, an hour of resistance radio that explores the movements that made us, drawing from the activist archives through to the voices of resistance today. I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from stolen lands, the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty has never been ceded. This year at Friends of the Earth, we're celebrating 45 years of resistance That's 45 years we've been mobilising communities, resisting the oppressive forces from patriarchy patriarchy to nuclear racism and transforming our future towards a more just world for all. Megan Williams with you today and I'm joined by my co-host Em Gaifer who has done a marvellous job pulling this series together, 11 shows and going strong. How are you doing today? I'm great. Really excited to be here for this week's show. Yep. Another one. I am excited with the guests we've got in store. So on the show today, we will be digging into the anti-capitalist position of Friends of the Earth and exploring our alliance with trade unions with discussion about how neoliberalism, globalization and militarization of society have been forces for which greenies and trade unionists can unite. To start us off, we'll have long-term unionist and member of Earthworker Dave Karen to lay the backdrop of the green bands, the union green bands, neoliberalism and the power of a free union. 
Then Friends of the Earth stalwart and current campaign's coordinator, the great Cam Walker, will share how Friends of the Earth and the unions built an alliance through the forest wars of the 1990s. And Dimney Hawkins will take us through the peace movement that has resisted the power of the state and increasing global militarization. We are covering the history of campaigns and the politics of the time over our 45 years of campaigning here in so-called Australia, what we did and why it's still important. So stick around after this community service announcement. Six years I've been in Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. You're listening to Acting Up. We're celebrating Friends of the Earth's 45th birthday with a retrospective series looking into our 45 years of creative resistance. You're here with Megan and Em and... We're about to crack into the history of the Greenies and the trade unions with Dave Karen, uh, Cam Walker and Dimity Hawkins. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. you. Now, this is a series about Friends of the Earth's history. Uh, But to start us off, Dave, could you um, share with us how you got involved in the union movement Uh, Tell us where your story of activism begins and set the scene for what the politics was like. So I uh, became involved in the union movement at the end of 1970. I joined uh, the Builders Labourers Federation as a boy. Prior to that, in the 60s, I'd been active in the anti-Vietnam War movement. And I ran into the unions in the anti-war movement. And some of the best fighters were from the Builders Labourers Federation. And, uh, you know, I, I needed to work, so I sort of got bits and pieces of work, some in the bush, some in Melbourne. And uh, I think I got my first job in, on a Melbourne side in about 72, something like that, 70, 71, 72. And, uh, yeah, and so my, my education began then, and uh, I ran into people like Norm Gallagher here in Victoria, and uh, probably more important from my own learning perspective, I ran into people like Jack Mundy and Bob Pringle and Joe Owens from the New South Wales branch of the BLF. And, of course, we ran smack into the green bands. Yeah, so unions have been taking industrial action to protect community and environmental spaces for a long time. Could you tell us about those green bands? Yeah, so green bands that happened before the 70s, before the 1970s, they were always called black bands. Um, but, you know, unions had intervened in the past uh, as far back as the, the 1940s to, to sort of save buildings and things like that. Um, it wasn't with the express purpose of saving the building. It was more with, with the idea of saving something that people needed, be it better parkland or, or you know, um, housing or whatever. But the formal movement as we know it started in the 1970s. And the first one actually happened in Carlton um, in Melbourne. Um, do you remember yeah. what space they were trying to protect back then? Yeah, it was a, you know, Princess Park. You've got that big strip of parkland. It goes from Princess Park all the way down through Clifton Hill. Scotty's wanted to build a tissue factory there. And, uh, and across the road from that were the commission flats. They're still there, those commission flats. 
Carlton was a very different place back then. Uh, it was, was inner-urban, but there was a lot of industry and a lot of jobs around Carlton. And uh, so there were people who lived in those flats who were in the Builders' Labourers' Federation, and they came to the union and said, look, they want to take this place where our kids play, and they want to take it off us. And uh, Gallagher, the secretary at the time, went down there with Mick Lewis, one of our organisers, and uh, uh, say good day to Mick. He's still out there and still, still kicking. And Gallagher did uh, 13 days jail over that, and Mick did seven days jail over that, uh, that first green band. Um, but as Jack always says, Jack Money in Sydney, yes, but you call it a black man still. We, <laughs> we invented the word green band, and that's true. And that, so that same year, 1970, Kelly's Bush happened uh, up in Sydney. And, uh, and what, it, what, it, what it was was the extension of, of the question of uh, economic democracy, uh, where unions have always been the voice of democracy within the economy. Uh, this was a, a much more, I suppose, blatant and r- realistic and obvious, uh, uh, you know, uh, questioning of uh, the, the sole right of the employer and the state to make decisions about our labour, how it was used, whether it was used, uh, what happened to the, the things that we created, um, all of that. And we were demanding the democratic right within the economy to make those decisions uh, equally with employers. Great. And neoliberalism and the free market took over as a dominant power sometime after that. Um, could you talk us through like how that came to be and mm. how that impacted the unions and their mm. response to it? Yeah, well, one of the big reasons why... Um, why neoliberalism was able to happen was because of the introduction in uh, 1977 in Australia, 1973 in Chile, the first rollout of this, was the, the anti-solidarity uh, laws. So mm-hmm. call different things in different countries. But here, 45D and E, the, 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 uh, these laws said that uh, whereas employers could continue to show solidarity with each other um, in a dispute, that it was illegal for workers to do that. Um, now, one of the main drivers for that were the green bands. Employers and the state were determined to break the alliance between the green and, and community-based activists and our unions because in those early 70s, there were $3,000 million worth of building materials held up in green bands. Now, that's a lot of money now, but back then, that was whole nation's GDP, you know. So um, they were determined to break that, and so they did that through various means... Uh, splitting and dividing the, the union movement, um, and, and as I say, up, up, right up to 1977 where they introduced the anti-solidarity laws. And then the, once unions began to comply with those laws, uh, which many of us in the movement on the left were arguing we shouldn't, we should stand and make sure these laws fail, um, uh, when those laws came in and people began to abide by them, that's when you saw then a successful rollout of the neoliberal agenda over the next, well, right up until the present day. So privatisation, casualisation, sham contracting, offshoring of jobs, all those things were never possible if we um, hadn't have gone along with the secondary boycott laws. The minute you outlaw solidarity, solidarity is our means and our end. You know, that's, that's our means to win disputes and it's the end we're seeking, the solidarity of human beings and other species. And... Could you describe, like, what would a different vision for the union, like, what other pathway could the union have taken to resist those? That's a really, that's, that's the question at the heart of the whole thing, because um, back then as younger men and, and women, um, we believed that we were fighting for a better world, not just a bigger share of this one. That if we were to fight only for a bigger share of this world, we would be colluding with those who warified around the world with their militaries and you know, who, who destroyed the planet underneath uh, our feet. So we were saying, look, th- there are other alternatives. They, they are to do with taking that notion within the green bands at the very heart of it, which was economic democracy. And then when you, when you look at where that's headed, so it hasn't all been a negative bad picture. One of the things that developed, for instance, out of that period was the continuing struggle for superannuation. So we take part of our wage and we set it aside. And we're now looking at a situation where in 20, I think it's 2029, um, $5 trillion. I mean, we're, we're around $3 trillion now. So if you look at China's, one, uh, China's Belt and Road, uh, that's a trillion dollars worth of investment. Um, you know, we've got three now. 
very soon we'll have five trillion. Now, we want democratic control over that, that socialised capital so that we can put it into the big green infrastructure projects. So that, that came out of unions continuing to struggle despite the anti-solidarity laws. I don't mean to give the impression that struggle died. Struggle continued. But more and more we were corralled and constrained by, by new sets of laws periodically being imposed on us to a point where now, with EBA unionism, enterprise bargaining agreement unionism, we're, we're corralled into this tight little enterprise notion of who we are as working people. And we need to break out of that. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think next year we're going to be forced to because of the new sets of laws that are coming down on us. And we might go to a quick break. Next we'll be talking to Cam Walker about Foe's story, how Foe's story comes to intersect with this history that we've been talking about. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. Which way the wind blows? You're listening to Acting Up. We're celebrating Friends of the Earth's 45th birthday with a retrospective series looking into our 45 years of creative resistance. You're here with Megan and Em, and now we will be talking to... Uh, the great Cam Walker of Friends of the Earth, about how Friends of the Earth's anti-capitalist principles have worked to build alliances with the union movement. So we're very excited to have you in studio today, Cam. Welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. And for a decade now, you've been a solid rock for all of us who have walked through the doors at FOE. So before we get stuck into it, can you tell us, how did you come to Friends of the Earth? That's an interesting question. Um, so I was a school teacher and was working in the Dandenongs and I went overseas um, and basically got involved in a whole lot of activism overseas and when I came back I couldn't get a job as a teacher because of where I was living. And um, I came into Collingwood one day. Friends of the Earth used to be in another place uh, also in Smith Street in Collingwood and saw a notice on the wall that there was a job going for a coordinator and uh, I guess as they say the rest is history. And have you been in that same role? Was it, it wasn't the coordinator, campaigns coordinator role, was it? It was originally like an operations coordinator role and then eventually it morphed into a campaigns coordinator role. Right. And um, Dave has just given us a pretty detailed recollection of where the union movement was in terms of taking action against the environment and solidarity and, uh, you know, like sticking together. When was it that Friends of the Earth reached out to the unions? So that is a long story that goes back probably to the genesis of Friends of the Earth. So as I understand it, you know, back in the mists of time uh, when FOE was set up, it was originally initiated in the United States by a guy called David Brower who felt that at that time environmental groups were very middle of the road and they weren't looking at issues in their social justice context. And in particular, he was concerned that no one was talking about nuclear power. And he said, well, nuclear power impacts on Indigenous people because of where uranium is mined, etc., etc. And it was in those early stages of starting to think around what we now call environmental justice, but in those days was just the, the human rights dimensions of um, 
environmentalism, so breaking out of the this is just something you do as middle-class people when you're comfortable, you know, that actually there needs to be an environmentalism for all people and that decision-making needs to include the human rights implications of whatever decision you take about where you invest money or where you, you take decisions as a government. And I think that kind of deepened. The network then grew, so that was the late 1960s, and then it, the, the, Nash, the International Network of Friends of the Earth was set up. And what happened quite quickly was groups from what we now call the Global South joined up and they were on the sharp end of capitalism. They were the people in the Amazon, you know, in places where corporates were coming in and basically riding over the top of them, possibly sometimes with support from local militaries uh, in order to turn forests into resources for overseas profits. And so that really sharpened our political awareness and particularly as groups come in in places like Malaysia and then later on from Latin America and Africa through the 1980s, that really just sharpened up that we weren't Worldwide Fund for Nature, you know, that we were a social justice left-leaning organisation with a, a, a critical perspective on the, the not just the benefits of capitalism but also the costs inherent in capitalism. And from its inception here, so in Australia it was set up in 1974 as a national network on the basis of, of groups that had pre-existed from the early 1970s. From that point, as I understand it, social justice was always something that mattered uh, to the network. And of course, when you're talking social justice, you have to talk about working people. And when you're talking about working people, you've got to talk about unionists. And one of the earlier initiatives that Friends Earth supported was this concept of environmentalists for full employment, which was a, a campaign that kind of ran in the early 1970s. So we always had a connection. We always understood that we needed to work closely with unions for good outcomes. Um, but personally, I think for me and also for Friends Earth, what happened was in the early 1990s, we set up a forest campaign in Victoria, and that very quickly um, led to forest blockading, which put us into conflict with workers who were often unionised. And after a couple of years of that, I think that there were a number of us who just went, well, you know, the villains here aren't the workers. The villains here are actually the governments and the corporations that are making the big, mark, uh, the big bucks off converting our forests into pulp. So let's stop fighting with people who should be our allies. And that really led to a deepening that ultimately led... Um, to the relationship that ended up with the creation of Earth Worker. Mm. And does that, uh, do you agree with that sort of recollection there, Dave? Yeah, you absolutely. were involved in the setting up of Earth Worker? Yeah, yeah. Uh, 25 years next year. Yeah. Mm. And so, like, what, could you go into a bit more detail about how Earth Worker was set up in that process? So, as Cam says, there, there were a few of us whose main area of work was union. Um, but were very active around environment and peace, Indigenous as well. Like We had a whole holistic view of our political life. Um, and, you know, and then people who were the same as us, only you know, in one of the other areas of that holistic uh, approach to life, and, so, and Cam, Cam being one. Um, so uh, Colin Wong, who's now the Environment Officer at Trades Hall, was one of, one of the founders. Um, uh, um, uh, Vasco uh, Drozovic uh, up in Dalesford uh, set up a, the Goat Hand uh, Cooperative, uh, which is, goes into the gullies and clears out all the fire stuff, was one of the founders of Earthworker. So people who helped set that up have actually spread out into a whole bunch of things. Well, they were there already. But, but I guess the framework that Earthworker uh, offered came from the, the, the lived life of Friends of the Earth and left unions and, and that. So, and that continues on. And how, Cam, how would you say this uh, effective this was in protecting forests and in building those alliances? It certainly resulted in protection of forests. So over time we achieved really huge advances in East Gippsland and the creation of new national parks. Um, and, you know, that was a fantastic outcome. There was a point where we said we're going to withdraw from the forests, from being involved on the, on the ground in the forests and bring the campaign to the city. And so there was like this whole repositioning whereby we started to do things like blockade the Victorian government's environment department, uh, what now would be called DELP, but had a, a different name in those days because we, we said, look, we consciously do not want to have a fight with unions. We're really tired of this because it just pits, you know, basically urban middle class younger people against, uh, you know, Anglo working class people in rural areas that have limited job opportunities anyway. And so it just, it was just that change in perspective that said, yes, we need to protect these trees. 
but we can't ignore the implications of protecting those trees in terms of what that means for the communities, not just the workers but their families and the businesses that rely on them. And that then required us to look at, well, what sort of industry is it? And we realised that it's actually not an industry that in the long term works well for workers because we have these amazing resources which are these native trees and we tend to pulp them. And so, you know, we started to dig into that and say, well, you know, what would a truly sustainable native forest industry look like? And we sought allies and we looked into smaller smaller volume but higher value production of forests. So we actually embraced the concept of native forest logging um, at that point, which caused us a lot of difficulty with other environmental groups that wanted to end all native forest logging. And we put a lot of effort into the establishment of the Forest Stewardship Council, for instance, which does say workers matter, indigenous people matter, ecological values matter, as well as business, whereas at present the, the triangle is dominated by business and all other values are subservient to that. So we gave it a really good shot and we did attempt to create a really robust, thriving native forest industry that was actually going to put Indigenous people at the core of that and put working people and their unions at the core of that. Um, in that sense, I think we failed and we have now um, adopted a position where we support an end to native forest logging because we were not able to reform that industry. It is still driven by the desire to turn our forests into pulp and we don't think that makes sense uh, but you know we did give it a good shot and in the interim we did uh, achieve protection of new areas of forest in East Gippsland in particular. Fantastic and this was a very interesting time uh, for environmental uh, campaigning, scary perhaps. Uh, can you tell us about some of the things that happened to you and possibly others that uh, you know interesting stories that hmm. Some may not know how, how intense it was back in the forest days. Dimity is smiling because she was there in those days. <laughs> um, yeah, so the 90s were an interesting time in that there were, it did, it was called the, the forest wars for good reason. Um, there was a lot of very interesting actors at play. Um, all of us experienced um, some scary moments in terms of forest campaigning. Um, it was a time where... Uh, even the police had come out um, and were suggesting that environmentalists were involved in terrorist activities and so we felt really like the, the state was against us. It was a really difficult and quite a scary time. We then uh, went to the police and spent a lot of time with them where eventually they came out and made a different position which said um, that you can't assume that environmentalists, if there's an incident in the forest, are, are behind it. But there was disinformation campaigns, there was physical intimidation, there was violence, there was fighting, um, you know, there was some very scary things that happened. Mm. And uh, I've heard that you've had your brakes cut. Uh, could you tell us about that? There, there was a, that was a, me. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, Dave. <laughs> there, yeah, there, were, up, mate. <laughs> yeah, there was that kind of crazy couple of months where there was a, a point in the campaign where we were just growing in ascendancy and there were some very conservative forces that didn't like that and we had things like I had a pretend bomb put under the bonnet of my car, I had the brake lining um, cut um, on my vehicle and then I almost smashed into the back of a semi-trailer um, I was followed by people in vehicles, I received death threats um, my house was broken into, that sort of thing so it was you know, a really scary point in the campaign um, in those early days, there was an attempt to work with unions, and unions often acted in those scenarios as moderating influences. But outside the unions, there were some aspects um, of uh, the community that were very scary and were quite happy to use violence in an attempt to silence us. Of course, it didn't work. But um, yeah, you know, the first time you go out to your car and you realise the bonnet is popped and you see a shoebox with wires um, under the hood of the car is a bit of a you know a, a frightening moment for someone that had never had that happen before. But you know that was just the way it was at that time. The feelings were very high on both sides uh, in both camps. Mm. Mm. Very mm. scary stories indeed. And um, I suppose testament to the power that you had, if it was worth um, going to those measures to silence you. Mm. We're listening to Acting Up, Friends of the Earth's 45th birthday retrospective series, and we'll be back after this. Our union's going to break slavery chains. I walked up on a mountain in the middle of the sky Could see every farm and every town I could see all the people in this whole wide world That's a union that'll tear the fascists down, down, down That's a union that'll tear the fascists down 
When I think of the men and the ships going down While the Russians fight on across the dawn There's London in ruins and Paris in chains Good people, what are we waiting on? Good people, what are we waiting on? So I thank the Soviets and the mighty Chinese vets The allies the whole wide world around To the battling British thanks You can have ten million yanks If it takes them to tear the fascists down, down, down If it takes them to tear the fascists down But when I think of the ships and the men going down And the Russians fight on across the dawn There's London in ruins and Paris in chains Good people, what are we waiting on? Good people, what are we waiting on? So I thank the Soviets and the mighty Chinese vets The allies the whole wide world around To the battling British thanks You can have ten million yanks If it takes them to tear the fascists down, down, down If it takes them to tear the fascists down Welcome back to Acting Up on 3CR. We're celebrating Friends of the Earth's 45th birthday this year with a retrospective history series looking back at the movements that made us. Today we're looking into Friends of the Earth's uh, work as an anti-capitalist organisation. We've been hearing about the history of the forest wars and our alliances with trade unions. But shifting gears now, we're going to be talking to Dimity Hawkins about Foe's work in the peace movement and resisting globalisation. Welcome to the show, Dimity. Thank you so much. And can you tell us, uh, when and where did your story begin at Foe? Well, it actually began because of this fella sitting next to me, Cam Walker. Um, I was a young thing. I'd been living, I, I moved to Melbourne in my late teens. Um, but I'd lived much of my life in the Pacific, in various places, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, New Zealand, and then back to Australia again. And I had, through that experience, had, um, you know, developed my own kind of worldview about inequities and so forth. And But in particular, I was interested in uh, peace issues. And um, I was thrashing around trying to find a way to contribute in the world. And someone suggested I come and talk to this fellow called Cam Walker, who was at uh, this place called Friends of the Earth, which was then on Brunswick Street. And so I turned up, and I've got to compliment you, actually, Cam, because it's actually something I say a lot out there in the community, and it needs to be said more often, is that he spent a couple of hours with me. That first day I dropped in, we made a time together, and he spent a couple of hours with me, walked me through, talked about the philosophy behind Foe, talked about the the feminist principles as well as the, you know, solidarity principles, all of the different principles of foe, you know, went through all the collective structures and so forth and, and then sort of said, so, you know, if you'd like to come and do some work with us, that would be really nice. And then off I went and went back to my job and said to them, I'm going to go from five days to three days a week so I can come and work with these people two days a week as a volunteer. But I saw over the years that I've worked with Foe, I've seen Cam do that again and again and again, always taking the time with people. So, you know, big, big shout out to you, mate, because that actually really does make a difference. It's those connections that people make, the time that is taken, the care and the love and the, and the sincerity that is, uh, actually makes an organisation like Foe remain vital in the world. So that was back in 1991, 1990 actually it was in the lead-up to the Gulf War, that I, that I joined FOE, and that was what brought me to FOE, and, um, yeah, the rest, as they say, Cam. <laughs> it's history, <laughs> and that's what we're doing today, is talking history, and I might just echo your comments on Cam, Cam's approach to life, really. Mm. Um, you are a beautiful... Friends of the Earth just wouldn't be the same without it, without you. Yeah, yeah. Um, did, did I? So... <laughs> What when you joined in 1990? What did you start working on? Uh, mostly on the on the Gulf War right then, because that was that was just about you know it was lead up to the Gulf War, and then so I was late 1990 came in to work properly in 1991 as the Gulf War was 
running riot, basically. And, and uh, there was huge movement against the war, and it was a, a really important and vital one. Um, at the time, lots of people out in the streets, uh, you know, saying no war for oil, that kind of stuff. So I started with that. I was working in the office with CAM in the campaigns area and doing the office office collective as we were then um, but my interests were very much around the around the military issues in particular so as that year went on um, you know that that war came and went and kept going for years but um, but as that year went on I got involved in the uh, stop adex um, exhibition as well as um, which and I was also with cam through a lot of that forest war time as well first arrest and so forth uh, over the forest wars um, but yeah started getting involved with the ADEX campaign and then we went on to Narunga and a whole lot of other things over the next few years and I'm interested could you tell us what ADEX was what was it about who was it targeting mm-hmm. um, and what were you protesting well ADEX was a huge arms fair up in Canberra in 1991 and um, it was meant to be like the the the, the arms fair for the region and it was all of the big all of the big bad boys in one place showing off their wares and selling those things now we'd just come out of a war we were, we were still in a war let's let's face it we'd also seen um you know things happening in timor-leste then with the the massacres there's a lot of things going on and there was a lot of connections being made about the solidarity issues with both which both dave and cam have spoken about and the militarist issues that sort of crossed over to a lot of those human rights issues, a lot of those environmental issues, a lot of those union issues, we could all see the connections. So ADEX was a huge arms fair and there was, it was a rallying point um, at which I've met some of my still best friends in the world and I'm, I'm pleased of that. Um, uh, it was a rallying point and it brought people together from all over the country to try and shut that one down and indeed it was shut down. It was a really... Um, very violent situation, um, unfortunately. The police were extreme in their, in their treatment of protesters there, as we've seen in other places over time. But um, it was an incredibly effective protest, I think. And it's meant that there hasn't been an arms fair like it since. There's been a few times where they've popped their heads over the parapet. And it's been pretty well shut down pretty fast. Mm. It's pretty amazing to be able to see some of those impacts in terms of, you know, not repeating some of those toxic industries being back, which is great. I guess I'm wondering, you know, in terms of talking about neoliberalism and globalisation, like what were some of those big links that you're seeing between militarism and the rise of neoliberalism? Well, I think you can't separate these things out, you know, and, and I guess when I think back, over over those times, those 90s and the 2000s and so forth, you know, we talk now a lot about intersectionality and, and how we understand things to be all linked together. Those understandings have been around for a very long time. So when you look at who are the largest arms companies in the world, many of them are also involved in other industries. So prisons, they're involved in, um, you know, roads, they're involved in all sorts of different ways. It's insidious in which ways these things cross over. They're also involved in superannuation funds. They're also involved in workplaces. They're also involved in so many different ways. So being able to understand where these companies are and what they're doing, but also the insidious links and crossovers between them is a really important thing. And when you start to look at it, it starts to become clearer and clearer that there's really a handful, relatively speaking, of very big corporations who have an disproportionate control over so many aspects of our lives, of our work, of our loves in this world. So um, I guess... Yeah, I guess that's it. Yeah. It's pretty pretty scary when it boils down to just being, you know, such a concentration of power. Mm. And just kind of going back to that context for the union movement as well, I guess, you know, with a lot of these big companies, we do see a loss of kind of workers' rights and oh, yeah. um, uh, eroding of union power when there is this kind of big corporate power. How did that sort of aspect of, of workers' rights and cooperating with union movements, did that play into the work you were doing at that time as well? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, you can't, uh, well, for one thing, a lot of the work that I was doing, a lot of the stuff that I wanted to concentrate on was around peace issues and around anti-militarism. And 
peace has always been core to union work as far as I've seen like the the history of unions involved in the peace movements from as far back as peace movements have ever existed is phenomenal um, so you know even when I think back to something like the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom which is over a hundred years old you know a lot of those women were also involved in in solidarity work and you know even when they didn't have rights to vote mm -hmm. in countries so that, that sense of solidarity and that, and that linkage between those things is really core. Um, and unions have been essential to, to really effective action around peace issues over the, over the decades. So particularly if you look around nuclear testing, for example, in the, in the Pacific, the unions actually, the solidarity union movements, you know, shut down so much around um, nuclear testing you know there was there was bans on on flying in and out of places there were bans on shipments into the country because of um, because of nuclear powered vessels or nuclear armed vessels all of these things the unions have had a, a really strong role on and it has been core business and it remains core business for so many unions to talk about peace and and that kind of thing as well and anti-militarism as well mm. Absolutely. And so we're going to, um, coming up in a little bit, talk about S11 and kind of some of that big organising that happened around the 2000s. But I guess I'm wondering, like, when you started at FOE and kind of into the 90s, like, how did you see uh, your work on peace and anti-militarism fitting into maybe a, a broader um, narrative that FOE had around anti-capitalism? Myself, personally, I think I was very young and I was learning on the job, you know what I mean? Um, I, I had to decolonize my own mind. I had to sort of educate myself. I didn't go to uni. I, didn't, I wasn't a uni person at that stage. Now I'm such a uni person. Oh, my God. Um, if only I could get free of uni. Um, but uh, back in those days, you know, I didn't do, I didn't do your classic go to uni and then, and then find my way in the world. I, I came straight to foe. I was um, working in various shops and... Um, you know, that kind of thing. So I was educating myself as I went along, and a lot of that was learnt through the good people I sat down with. So Cam, obviously, but the, um, you know, the old stalwarts like Isla and, and Eric and uh, Linda and all of those sorts of people as well, Dave Sweeney. You know, so many of these people taught me. They brought me up in, in this way. So I learnt through seeing I learnt through the solidarity I learnt through um, talking to people at the time and I guess that's something that's really essential about foe too you know that the, the the education that can take place the generosity of the of the sharing of knowledge and the sharing and caring of someone being brought into that into that world because it's not easily got to unless you have some kind of structure in your mind, unless someone teaches you those structures, unless someone educates you in those ways. And the, and the care that people like Dave, Cam and so many others who've been involved in union movements, in foe, in human rights movements, in peace movements, in women's movements, the care and the mentorship, if you want to call it that, that allows people to learn on the job like I did was just, you know, incredibly generous, incredibly important, I think. Mm, absolutely. I think that's a, um, a kind of learning that a lot of us who have come through Friends of the Earth can relate to, and it's a really special part of our community, yeah, I think. I think so, yeah. I yeah. think it's an incredible gift. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you're listening to 3CR. This is Acting Up. We're celebrating Friends of the Earth's 45th birthday. We are just going to go to a quick break, and we'll be back after this. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people by having no issue and destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. Which way? Hi. 
Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. The Voice of West Papua now has a one-hour show. We have moved from Monday 6.30 to Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. Yes, more news and music from West Papua. You're listening to Acting Up. It's 45 years of creative resistance of Friends of the Earth history with Megan and M. And we're fast running out of time on the show today, but before we draw to a close, I'd like to reflect back on the S11 protests of 2000 and the impact that September 11 had on the anti-globalisation movement. So, Dimity, to start us off, could you tell us what was S11 and how did it all happen? So the S11 protests, it was actually a major protest that happened over three days, September 11, 12 and 13th in the year 2000. Um, and it was against the World Economic Forum. So the World Economic Forum had had um, set Melbourne at Crown Casino. I mean, uh, the irony, right? Um, at Crown Casino, um, they'd set their World Economic Forum meeting. And the year before that, in Seattle, there'd been a massive um, protest movement against the same meeting of, of, of world leaders and well, economic forum people um, in, this, in this thing. And so it came to Melbourne. And so there was a massive protest that was, um, was coordinated here, um, largely from Melbourne, but it was really national in its scope. And there were different uh, blocks on the, on the protest because it was decided that we would blockade the World Economic Forum. Um, and so there were different areas taken by different groups. And Friends of the Earth had established a green block. Um, so that was one, one area that was, um, was established by FOE and uh, working in solidarity with all the other different blocks as well. So in terms of, you know, you said there was the Seattle protests the year before and it was about the World Economic Forum. What were some of the issues that were coming together in that time that the protest was focused on? It was largely around corporate globalisation. So the, the corporations taking over all sorts of things that we still see today. It's the same conversation. I mean, the deja vu is quite enormous when I think back to it. You know, the, the sorts of things that were being warned about with the World Economic Forum, the concerns that people had around corporate globalisation were phenomenal. So whether you're looking at indigenous um, groups losing their rights to their crops or you're looking at um, workers' rights and being taken away by the corporatization of um, and, and the overriding of union rules, as Dave was talking about earlier, taking away the solidarity principles, those sorts of things. Whether you're talking about that greater slice, you know, rather than um, living with the earth, living, taking from the earth kind of mentality that major corporations have. So it was about all of that. That's how I would read it. What about you two? Would you read it to Finley? Yeah, no, I would read it the same way. I, we each brought our own histories to those events and we saw, we, um, those of us who'd been involved in left unionism through the 80s and 90s viewed it through the prism of the deregistration and derecognition of the Builders Labourers Federation, mm -hmm. which was my union. So we were outlawed. Every six months, the police would be on the union gate checking your union ticket. If you had the wrong one, if you were in the BLF, you were sacked on the spot. There was a special BLF squad that, that targeted us 24-7. Wow. Um, we had hundreds of arrests over many, many years. That led us into the 90s in a period of the ACTU trying to put its stamp back on the union movement again, where, where all of a sudden we were now all back in the family again. But it was Christmas and we're all blueing like cut cats. So <laughs> when, when 2000 hit... It hit with those of us coming from one side of that, where we had been blacklisted and our kids were telling police with warrants that we didn't live there anymore, and the other side, some of whom had colluded in those events. Mm -hmm. So when we hit 2000, um, it was amazing just that we were there as a union movement, but we marched down there, and uh, Lee Hubbard was secretary at the time, mm -hmm. and uh, Brian Boyd was the, was the uh, uh, campaign's organiser. I went on to become 
the Secretary of the Law. So all of the contradictions within S11 were apparent. So, for instance, there was a, a group of newly unionised workers in Crown Casino, some thousands of them, mm. who couldn't get out because of our blockade. And we couldn't find anyone to talk to because there was no quote-unquote leadership. Um, so in the end, we had to set up our own blockade and let them out uh, halfway through the second day. So, um, you know, that's okay. Those things are fine. The, the thing is, so long as we're friends and comrades, sometimes your friends are wrong, and that's okay. The, 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 the lesson from the past, especially coming through the BLF stuff, for me, was, was don't let that fact that sometimes your friends are wrong drive you apart. Mm. Or always find the way back in, because they're, A, they're temporary, but B, they're often the same side, uh, two sides of the same story. Does that make sense? Like, mm, absolutely. So, so those contradictions, it was important we lived through those, because if you look at IMARC, mm. very different, learnt from those experiences. And when there was a union conference at IMARC, uh, an OHS, sorry, conference at IMARC, a lot of union people going into the OHS. So the IMARC and the unions met for, for weeks and, and worked out that, okay, we're mm. going to do this right. And, and everyone did. Yeah, great. I think we're seeing a lot of that in Hong Kong as well at the moment in terms of, you know, people with a lot of different values still coming together and having that unity, which is quite inspiring. Cam, I'd love to hear your perspective on S11 too. I know you were involved with organising um, for FAUX S11. What was that like for you? I would fully agree with what's being said. Um, and I guess the, con, uh, you know, the context was neoliberalism was in its absolute ascendancy, mm-hmm. you know, back to the Margaret Thatcher days of Greed is Good and, and Reagan. Um, it, it had just kept growing and growing and it was manifesting through the, the signing of these so-called free trade agreements and free trade basically means free for corporates to do whatever they want um, mm-hmm. and bad for everyone else. And I guess, you know, the the, the iconic image of, of that era was the Maquiladoras, the free trade zones that were created under the North American Free Trade Agreement, which basically put all the factories south of the border from the United States into Mexico without unions, with absolutely repressive, you know, um, literally, you know, death squads working against anyone that dared to unionise, terrible levels of, of gendered violence and absolutely no environmental protection. So for us, that's what the neoliberalism meant in that era. Mm-hmm. And so we saw the need to uh, work with all the allies. And at, S, uh, at S11, at those protests, there were church groups, there were, you know, Quakers, there were old school communists, there was basically, you know, there was young mm-hmm. kind of feral activists like everyone was there some of, some of us who are all of those at once Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and still are and um, you know we fa- as Dimity said we found ways to work together by you know having different blocks so there would be an anarchist block or a black block or a green block or a union block and sometimes we didn't all agree but that was okay but I think uh, the important thing to understand that w- w- there was a lot that went on under the water and we actually spent nine months nine very long months working with churches and unions and aid and development groups and basically getting everyone aligned even if in public we didn't all necessarily agree we had agreements that we wouldn't cut across each other and I think that's one of the highlights from the S11 uh, protests there were thousands of people blockaded crowd casino but in the build up there was aid and development groups having conferences churches and faith communities having events and none of us contradicted each other we were all possibly separate but but we also had a, a, a tacit understanding that the problem here was structural and the structural problem was neoliberalism. Yes. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. It's a very um yeah, I guess inspiring message to to think about how we incorporate that into activism now as well. Mm. And you know, I was thinking you mentioned Seattle and I've read Hope in the Dark recently and Rachel Solnit kind of mm. talks about that time and hearing from S11, it does seem like a bit of a, a like quite a, a, a breaking point or a shift. Do did you feel that at the time that it was kind of a changing energy in that sort of space? I, I think I did at the time. I think it was a really vital um, moment where where that intersectionality really was writ large, like where the threat was writ large, where we were starting to understand that this was a new level of, of, of an agenda that had been going on for a while. You know, as, as was said before, you know, Margaret Thatcher's there's no such thing as community or whatever that mm-hmm. quote was from her. You know, we were showing there was community and, oh, boy, were we doing it? Mm-hmm. You know, um, women speaking out, Indigenous voices being highlighted, all of this sort of thing happening throughout the whole um, process. I think that what is perhaps... In my mind, what happened was that this this global movement 
um, you know, and it was a globalization of sorts, this global movement then got corrupted by what happened the very next year, and in mm -hmm. fact on that date, which yeah. was September 11, uh, 2001. And we then saw a massive shifting back. We were feeling this, le this level of progress, and this was in many areas. I was working on nuclear disarmament at the time. We felt really like in 2000 we were getting somewhere on nuclear disarmament. September 11, 2001 happened, and bang, we were into a war on terror. We were into a whole, you know, you're either with us or against us. We were mm -hmm. into a mm -hmm. massive militarization again, which shut, shut down and silenced so much of the progress that we were seeing on that. Mm -hmm. What I feel now is that we've, we've, that was never lost, actually. That although things had become, we, that we were suppressed and oppressed in the, in the war that followed, the wars that followed, and the wars on society that were um, manufactured through what happened in September 11, 2001, the stuff that happened that year before still has still borne through. And we're still seeing it now, and we're seeing new generations of people understanding the complexities, the, the intersections between all of these different things, the ways in which these movements can work together. And I, I feel great hope for that, because when I think back 20 years, which is almost 20 years ago that we were doing that, and I see what's happening now. I can see so many connections. There's a, it's like we're on a continuum. Mm, absolutely. And thanks for touching on kind of where we're at now. We are coming towards the end, but I thought maybe to wrap it up, I'm wondering, Cam, if you could maybe just reflect on how you feel like Friends of the Earth currently is campaigning around anti-globalisation or where we're at in terms of, you know, where we've been before. So compared to, for instance, the S11 protests, our network globally is bigger and it is active on every continent except Antarctica and um, it's got a very strong anti-neoliberalism approach. So we're actually doing more work, I'd suggest, um, on a day-to-day -day basis than we probably were then. I think a lot of our campaigning has come back to the local level. So in those days we used to do more thematic work such as you know, tackling the questions of inequality and neoliberalism and how does it play out, whereas now I think we do perhaps more traditional campaigning around environmental issues like inland rivers or forests or you know sustainable transport um, but I think that that underlying ethos and that underlying analysis that says the current system is not working for most people is still hardwired into the type of work that we do. Mm. And that brings us just about to the end of the show. It's been absolutely fabulous. I'm very sorry we're out of time. I would like to thank our guests today, Dave Karen, Dimity Hawkins and Cam Walker. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for having us on. And I'd also like to say a big thanks to my co-producer, M. Gafer, for all your hard work making this show a reality. Thank you. And everyone at 3CR for supporting us to make this happen. If, you'd en if you've enjoyed this show and haven't heard all of our other episodes, I'd like to encourage you to go back and listen to the whole series. We've explored a huge range of topics and had guests from throughout all the areas of Friends of the Earth. So head to 3cr.org.au slash appingup to listen back. And that's about all we have time for. Taking us out today is Freedom by Kev Carmody. Human freedom's fundamental and justice to say right. Equality's that thin line between wrong and right. When the earth is denuded, the creatures oppressed, then justice and freedom are put to the test. We say freedom. Freedom will come. Welcome freedom. Justice will come. Welcome justice. Freedom, equality, justice are one. If we resist and justice, freedom will come. Freedom will come. Welcome freedom.
savages keep the oppressed so poor. Resistance will break the stealth eagle's claw. Peace is much more than the absence of war. The man, the child, the mother earth, the land, the law, the living sun, the creatures and the living plants, all cry out as one nature. Oh, cry out as one nature.